Well, good morning. My name's John. I am a teacher at Gilbert Christian High School. Um, yesterday was the two-month anniversary of my wife and I getting married. This is, uh, thank you. This is our church. We love our church, and so it is a, it's a privilege for me to serve you by, by preaching God's Word uh, this morning. So I want to I wanna start by asking you a question. Have you ever had that awkward moment when you uh, found yourself getting into, the, into a conversation that you overheard other people having uh, right in the middle? And you're like, I, what's going on here? It caused con- confusion and you started having questions and uh, that conversation didn't make any sense because you, you didn't have the context. Like if we could flash back 15 years and when I was just finished with high school and you might find me with my friend Dave and at his brother's place and we, were, we, we might be talking on the phone. There was one day if you were to show up on this particular day and you're, you know, DeLorean, your Back to the Future machine, you'd show up there and you would, you might see us talking to a locksmith. And if you arrived at the middle of the conversation, you would have heard us saying something along the lines of, I'm, I'm really embarrassed, but I'm trapped and I need you to come to the corner of 18th and Santa Ana to, uh, to help me. Please come quickly. And you might think if you showed up right in that moment, oh no, they're, they're trapped in his brother's apartment and they need to get out. Oh, locksmith, please like, come get them because you've got a really good heart. But we didn't have such a good heart because if you, were, if you had the context, without the context, I guess, you would have no idea that the conversation was actually a crank call <laughs> that went something like this. I, uh, I don't know how to say this. I'm, really, um, I'm locked in the trunk of my car. And uh, I'm really embarrassed, but I'm trapped, and I need you to come to the corner of Santa Ana and 18th Street to help me. Please come quickly. See, what happens is we would do that, and we would, we would pick a car right across the street so we could watch as the locksmith comes, and it's like on the, on the trunk, and we're just cracking up. Like, you would, like, so I say all, I mean, I feel like it's like confession time whenever I come up here. It's really strange. But anyways, sometimes context is critical. Or it'll be hard to make sense of things. Now, we just read Galatians 3, 10 through 29. Now, let's be honest. How many of you, John was saying stuff like, promise to Abraham, annul a covenant previously ratified 430 years, and you just kind of like, what am I going to have for dinner after that? What am I going to have for lunch after this? kind of easy to check out in a moment like that. I'm not going to have you raise your hand and ask you if you checked out, but I just want, it's easy to do that because this passage assumes context, and by, by, by reading, just reading the passage, if you don't have that context, then it's like coming into the conversation in the middle and going, I don't, I don't understand what's going on here. So what I want to do before we jump into the text is I kind of want to give you that context. I kind of want to help you understand, like, here's what's going on. Here's what Paul assumes that you know in order then to understand what he says. And so I want to do that by turning you, keep your finger, this little ribbon guy here, and, and turn all the way to the first book of the Bible to Genesis chapter 12. What I want to make sure you understand as you're turning there is that if you checked out while John was reading this passage, then what you missed is that this passage deals with the most important, the most relevant question that you can ever ask. This passage answers the question, can I be right with God? 
Can God and I be friends? And if, that, if I can, then how does that happen? There is no more important question you can ask, and this passage answers it, but if you don't have the context, you might miss it. So that's why we're in Genesis chapter 12. I believe that everyone in this room will find themselves in this passage. And so it's important to have this context from Genesis 12 in order to see yourself in, in Galatians chapter 3. So in Genesis 12, you have this account of Abraham, and we put it on the screen in case you didn't have a Bible. But what I want, if you have your Bible, Abram, his name is changed to Abraham later, but he is introduced at the end of chapter 11. Now, the Bible can be summarized using the problem-solution idea. The problem is sin, the solution is Jesus. Pretty simple. But in that simple answer, there's a lot of complexity, and that's what this passage begins to unfold, because God begins to solve the sin problem with this guy, Abram, who's later renamed Abraham. Chapter 11 gives some background, where it says, like, verse 27, these are the generations of Terah. He fathered Abram, and he had some other sons, and they're living here and there. And what you find out about Abram, if you just read the end of chapter 11, is that he's really not anything special. He's kind of a loser. Like, I don't know, married guy, still lives at home with his dad, his wife can't have kids. Like, we're, we're not talking about the dude that would be called for Dancing with the Stars. You know, he's not like, he's not on Mel Kuyper's big board. People Magazine is not going to be following this guy around. And TMZ isn't going to do reports on him because he's just kind of boring. He's kind of a loser. Like, dude, you're like pretty old and you're living with dad. That's kind of weird. Like, and so we're, we're not looking at a guy that's really all that great. This is nothing spiritual either. Like, Abram was a righteous man who feared God, did everything he was told. He, it doesn't say anything like that at all. You just get this general intro to Abram. He's this regular guy, but God shows up, and everything changes. And this is, this, this chapter 12 is one, of, I would say, one of the top five chapters in the entire Bible, because every single thing that happens in the Bible from chapter 12, verse 4, to the end of the book of Revelation, is the outworking of these three verses that we put on the screen here. The whole Bible is absolutely committed to explaining how these three verses play themselves out in reality, how God fulfills what he says here. So let's take a look at it. You can look up there. You can look in your Bibles. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house at the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So God chooses one man, Abraham, from a likely millions of people alive at that time and says, I promise to bless you. Not because you're awesome. There's nothing here that says he's awesome. I promise to bless you because I'm awesome and I'm gracious. And he says, I'm going to bless you in three ways. I'm going to bless you first by giving you personally with a great name. Second, it says there, I'm going I'm to bless you by making a great nation out of your descendants. And then number three, which is the important one for us right now, I'm going to bless all of mankind through you. You are, you are going to have an impact that reaches the entire world. Really? This guy? Huh. 
And see, from chapter 12, you go to chapter 15, and in chapter 15, that promise number two there is in jeopardy because Abraham's getting super old, Sarah's super old, God promises you're going to have descendants, Sarah can't have kids, Abraham's super old, so they're going like, did you change your mind on that whole thing? And God said, no, I didn't, and it says in chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so you've got this idea, two important ideas here from Genesis. The first one is that through Abraham, the whole world is going to be blessed. That's the first one. And the second one is that righteousness, or being, being made right with God, is the result of faith. We see that in Abraham. And those two things, those two truths, are the necessary background that you need to understand Galatians chapter 3. So now turn back to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, we're going to see both of those promises starting in chapter 3 verse 6 where we see Abraham's faith, we see righteousness, and we see this third promise. So look at chapter 3, verse 6. It says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15, 6. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. When you exercise faith, when you trust God like Abraham did, you are in that line with Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so we see that this passage shows that God is, it's not just like some general blessing, that this blessing he gave to Abraham is actually salvation, that God will save through Abraham, that there, that's the message of salvation will reach beyond the Jews to the non-Jewish world, and it's all from this promise, verse 9, so then those who are of faith, those who, those who are trusting, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now Paul's emphasizing this because this, this salvation by faith alone, because false teachers have invaded these churches in Galatia. These churches, book of Galatians, it's, it would, it, it, this is modern Turkey. And so what you have here is that these churches in what would be modern day Turkey, false teachers have come in and, they, and he writes this book to confront their false teaching. And here's the thing, if you were in this church in Galatia, you would be saying, all right, before I heard that salvation was by faith, by trusting in Jesus, now these guys, these teachers have come into our church and started saying, trust Jesus and obey the law. Trust Jesus and be obedient, and then you'll be saved. And so here's what's happened. If you were in this church, you would either have already said, those teachers are right, I'm going to follow them, or you're going to be sitting there going, which is true? I've heard one way to be saved, trusting in Jesus. Another way to be saved is trust Jesus and fulfill the law. What am I going to do? Which way am I going to go? So Paul knows, like, these people are in trouble. They, they need help. And so, because you're going to be saying, who's telling me the truth? Which one is right? Which one has the, the backing of God and which one is made up? So in order for us to really understand this, this, this tension going on in the book of Galatians, we're going to jump into it now. And what I want you to, to what, what, I want, have, what I want you to notice here. Paul really emphasizing salvation by faith alone, because what the false teachers are doing, let me put it on the screen for you. There it is, look at that, it was awesome. Jesus 
plus obedience to God's law equals salvation. That's on the one hand, and that's verses. Jesus plus anything equals absolutely nothing, no salvation. So it's either Jesus plus obedience to the law equals salvation. Jesus plus anything equals no salvation. So this is the tension. False teachers on top, Paul on the bottom, and there's this battle going on for the souls of the people. Now, the law of God is this. If you're like, what is the law? If I obey, like, the Constitution? Like, what is that? The law of God are these 613 commandments found between Exodus and Deuteronomy, the first, the, the second through fifth books of the Bible. So you've got this, these 613 commandments that were given to the Jews in order for them as sinful people to have a relationship with the Holy God. How do sinful people have a relationship with the Holy God? Well, this, well, the law was given in order to make sure that sinful people could do that without being killed, basically. And so what you have here is Paul saying, well, guys, is salvation really found in obedience to the law? Or is it found in something else? And we saw two weeks ago at the end of chapter 2 that Paul says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, being made right with God, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And what Paul does in chapter 3 is he spends the entire chapter proving why that statement is absolutely true. So what I want to do with you is I want to give you three reasons why the law can't save you. Three reasons why it's, it, it, makes, it cannot make people right with God. And the first reason, I want you to see it in verse 10, is that the law demands perfect obedience in order to earn salvation. To be right with God by following the law you must be perfect. So look at verse 10. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. And then skip to verse 12. But the law is not of faith. These 613 commandments, they are not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So he shows that salvation in this passage, if, you, if, if the thought is, okay, the way to be right with God, the way to have a relationship with him, the way to be saved is that I, that I obey the law, I keep his rules. I'm a good person, that if, that if I'm a good person, I do what, what God says, then I'll be right with him. And so in order to do that, though, what happens is Paul makes it very clear with that word in verse 10, does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, is what Paul is saying is he's using the Old Testament to show them that you don't get any breaks from the law. The law doesn't give you a holiday. It doesn't give you a vacation. It doesn't give any sense of like, hey, you got a free pass for the next 30 minutes. Sin it up and you'll be good to go. Like, it doesn't do that at all. Some will overlook small little respectable sins, especially like internal ones, because you can't see internal ones, external ones like, yeah, if I murdered somebody, yeah, you would be able to see that. But if I covet, you can't. The law doesn't say, well, it's all that external stuff. That's the bad stuff. But the internal stuff that, you know, you can hide that and you're good to go. The law says, no, guess what? External and internal, all of it, you don't keep it. All of it, not only do you not keep it, is that you've got to keep it every second of every day, not just outside, but inside, not just in, th- in your actions, but in your thoughts, in your emotions. 
in your attitudes, all of that. Others, like we, we sang about it, they, they work really hard, like their zeal is huge for like, I just want to obey, and, and they're going to keep all of these rules like the Apostle Paul talks about. All of that, he says, did you mess, it's basic, did you mess up once? If you messed up once, you're in trouble. This is not looking too good right now. Because it's, it's showing here, Paul is showing here that God is not great on a curve. He doesn't look away. He won't give the slightest exemption from the smallest command. Meaning that this person must never make a mistake. They must not have one evil thought. They must never have one bad attitude. No exceptions, no excuses, no failure, even in the slightest way. If this is the way that someone's going to be saved, Paul is saying, if you want to go down that road, if you want to find life there, verse 12, then you must do all of it perfectly. Well, you know, that's those people 2,000 years ago. How many people do you know that say, how am I going to heaven? Are you going to heaven or not? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, but I mean, I'm a good person. No, I'm a good person. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm somewhere in the middle. And, you know, God, I mean, God knows my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And, you know, I'm, I'll be fine. Paul says like 51% ain't cutting it. It's not even close. You must be perfect. That's what Jesus said, right? Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Never messing up, never failing, always only doing what's right. Even if you're like, I'm sold out for Jesus now. I'm, I, I want to obey. Like, it's all about obedience for me. It's all about obedience. Did you mess up once? One time. Just all of your sold outness. It's great. If you've never sinned from this moment on, awesome. Did you just have one right before that commitment? Doesn't matter. You're lost. The law is meant to make you say, well, salvation by the law means I must be perfect. And you know what's insane? That people think they can be. People think that they are. People think, yeah, law? I mean, yeah, sure, like, there's some things there, you know, but whatever. I'm fine. Paul says, no, you're, you're not fine. Verse 10, you're, you're under a curse. Curse is the, the punishment of God. And that every second of every day, that curse hangs over your head. And every second of every day, you live under the weight of that law. That, that law is screaming, you didn't do that right. You didn't do that right. You didn't do that right. You broke this one. Hey, look at this one. You broke that too. Never giving any hope, never giving any rest, always only telling you, you must be perfect. The law does not help. The law hurts. The law doesn't make us better. The law is meant to destroy us, which is what we see actually. And the next thing I want you to know about the law is that it can't make people right with God. It actually keeps us from salvation. Look at verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, 
We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So notice in there that, that verse 23, those words captive and imprisoned. In verse 22, the word imprisoned, like this is not good news. Because the law comes along and say, see, here's what we try to do. A person looks at the law and says, well, I've done, I, I, I broke that one, but I kept this one, and I kept this one, and I broke that one. So what we try to do is we try to lessen the, 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 the condemnation that the law puts on us. And so we look at it and we go, well, I did that one, so I'm okay. And then we, we read a little more and go, ooh, I broke that one. I can't get around it now oh, but I'm really good at compartmentalizing, so I can get rid of that. And I can, oh, I kept that one, that's good. And then I read a little more, oh no, I broke that one. In other words, when he talks about being imprisoned, he's saying the law does not let you escape. The law does not allow you to rationalize and to twist it and to move it aside so that you can feel like I'm okay and I'm right with God. The law doesn't let you do that. But the law they're looking for salvation warns all who read it against looking to the law for salvation because in this system, salvation stands or falls based on a person's ability to keep the law. And as soon as you read it, you realize, I cannot keep this. Ten commandments, right? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Use God's name as a cuss word. Like, all right there, like we're all done. And it's not like the law is like these disconnected commands that, you know, if I break this one, that's okay because this one is, this one is still intact. It's like, a, it's like a window. Like if you break one part of your window, the whole thing is broken. The same thing is true of the law. You break one part, the whole thing's broken. You're done. You're dead. It's over. This thing does not help. The law tells people, here's what's right, here's what's good, do this, but it never says, hey, let me help you. Let me give you power to do this. It just constantly tells you, you have no hope, you're done, you broke one, that's it. You, it doesn't matter if you broke two or two million, like you're done, it's over, you're lost, you're dead, you're cursed. It never gives anyone the power or ability to do anything. Like at one point in my life, I had the power and the ability to bench press 200 pounds. You might not believe that, but it's true. Like, I, I could do that. Today, I have the ability to bench press 200 pounds because my arms, like, still can do this motion, but I, I don't have the power to do that. I'm not even close. <laughs> I wouldn't even try. However, I have never had the power or the ability to jump over the moon. Just don't have that. And that's what Paul is saying here. The law does not give you the power or the ability to keep it. It's impossible. You cannot keep it. So it's utter insanity to say, all right, I'm going to look at God's law and I'm going to keep it. And when I stand before God, I'm going to say, hey, look at this. Look at my resume. Isn't it awesome? Like, check me out. I should be with you because look at how good I am. That is, Paul saying that's utter, just nonsense. The law doesn't have the power to save you. It only has the power to crush you. It only has the power to make sure that you understand that you have never kept this law. And it never stops announcing guilty, guilty, guilty. It never shuts up all your righteousness, all your goodness, worthless fiction. The law offers no hope of rescue. All it offers is the inescapable expectation of divine judgment where God will take your life, compare it to the law, and go, guess what? You broke it. You broke it all over the place. And once that happens, the pronouncement is guilty. And once that happens, it's hell. The law is meant to destroy you. The law is meant to crush you. 
It's as if the law was a, a giant wall that says all over this wall, get past this wall and you go to heaven. And you see the wall and you go, all right, I just got to get past this wall. No big deal. At one point in your life, maybe that wall looks kind of small, small wall. And then it just says it, it just get over this and you'll be saved. And so you think, well, I'll just put a little like chair next to it. I'll step on the chair and get over the wall. And as soon as you put that chair there and jump on top of it, the wall just raised up a little bit. Oh, I can't get over that now. And so you think, well, maybe I'll get like a, I don't know, a pull vault stick and I'll just, you know, pull vault over that thing and it just gets bigger. And you think, okay, I need like an airplane. So you just hop in an airplane. You're like, I'm going right over that wall and it just gets bigger. And the higher you get, the higher. So you're like, I need a rocket ship. This rocket ship is going to take me over this wall. And you hop in your rocket ship and you shoot up miles and miles and thousands of miles. And the wall is just right there. So then you think, well, I can't get over it. So maybe I can get around it. So you start walking and it starts getting wider. You get in a car, it keeps getting wider. You get in a, a, like a, a jet train, and it just keeps getting wider. You can't get around it, so you think, maybe I can go through it, but it's indestructible. And so you're going, okay, this is, not, this is not good. Why? Because the wall says, get past me, and you go to heaven. And what ends up happening is the more you see that, the more you realize, I'm not going to heaven. I can't get around this wall. The wall is not letting me. There's no, like, foot notches in there where you can put your foot in and like climb. It's just sheer face. You can't do anything about it. It offers no help. It shows no sympathy. It just proclaims to you, you are not going to heaven. You are done. You are lost. In the same way, the more a person tries to get around the law, they find that there's no way to get around it. The law doesn't help you. Because you try to get around, and then another command comes up. Oh, broke that one. We'll push that aside. I'll go to an, oh, broke that one. And all it constantly does is tell you your obedience is repulsive because it's not perfect. Your successes don't count at all because only your failures matter. The law they were trusting in to make them right with God actually made it impossible for them to ever be right with God. They're hopelessly condemned, trapped in sin's prison, awaiting their trial while they will be found guilty, and they will endure the wrath of God in hell forever as the fair and just and right and good penalty for their rebellion. And the last thing I want you to know about the law that the law can't make a person right with God, but it takes people to Jesus, the only one who can. The law can't make anybody right with God, but the law takes people to Jesus, who is the only one who can make someone right with God. So look at verse 24. It says, the law was our guardian. Now this word guardian refers to a slave who was hired by a family whose job it was to supervise the young boys for the parents. They took them to and from school. They were often very strict with the boys, and so they would scold them and even whip them to make sure that the boys were disciplined, to make sure the boys were doing their homework. Like, I could use some of these at the high school I teach at. be really nice. But here we've got, so this idea that that this guardian relationship was never to be permanent. It ended when the young man grew up. And once the young man grew up, 
to change the whole relationship because they didn't need the guardian anymore. The guardian lost its authority over them because now they're grown up. And so what you have here is God gave the law to be that guardian to take us to Jesus. And how does it do that? It does that by convincing people that they need salvation. And it does, it does that by convincing them that they're lost. The law is meant to destroy you. The law is meant to crush you. The law is meant to fill your mind with guilt and fear. And it's meant to destroy your pride. And it's meant to destroy your self-esteem. And it's meant to bring you to your knees. It's meant, to, it's meant for you to cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nothing in my hands I bring. I got nothing good here. All my goodness, you're not impressed with. What impresses you is how many times I failed. That's what you're really focused on because you're holy and I'm sinful. And when those two come together, it's wrath. And so you, I'm in trouble. That's what the law is meant to do. It's meant to produce these, it's meant to shatter pride by showing us who we really are, not compared to other people because that doesn't really matter. It shows us who we really are before God. And when we see who we are before holy God, by the, by the help of the law, it's meant to bring us to our knees, cry out to the Savior, I need you, wash me, Savior, or I die. I have no hope. I've got nothing in me. There's no good thing in me. It's meant for you to just bow your knee and just be like, Jesus, I need you because I can't do this. There's no way I've done this. It doesn't matter what I do from this moment forward. What I've done from this moment past condemns me, and I need you. I have to have you. If I don't have you, it's over for me. And, and the law is meant to do that. It's meant to take you and just bring you to Jesus. And so Paul is saying it is absolutely insane for you to trust yourself, for you to look at yourself and say, gosh, I'm a pretty good person. He says it's absolutely insane for you to trust yourself when you could trust Jesus. It's utter insanity because there's no hope for you, but Jesus was perfect. Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinned. That law, he kept it. His perfect life can be yours. What does it say there? By faith, until Christ came. The law dominates every thought, every word, every decision. Verse 24, until Christ came. Until Christ comes to you personally. In order that we might be justified by faith. By adding more and more laws to a person's conscience, eventually... The law crushes them. It brings them to the point of, of self-denial. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's Jesus doing evangelism. And he's saying, he's saying it, it, it is meant to destroy you so that you will approach God the way that you should, which is not, hey, look at my resume, but you took my resume and you punished Jesus for my resume. And, and I'm trusting him. My resume, done. My resume is awful. Give me Jesus. What, what Paul is doing here is he's trying to help his readers understand that there is a humility that comes from the law. That when it, when it breaks you, it humbles you. 
and that puts you in the right place where you need to be in order to be saved. That at the heart of this idea that I can keep these rules and in order to be right with God is pride. That here I am, I'm, I'm good. And the law comes along and says, you're not good. And in, in a moment, when they're reading this passage, when they're reading this letter, they can either say, that's garbage, I am good. Or they can say, you're right, I'm not. And Paul writes in verse 25, now that faith has come, now that salvation has come apart from the law, we are no longer under a guardian. Whenever anyone adds works to faith, saying it's not Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, but Jesus plus obedience equals salvation, it's the equivalent of a grown man needing a babysitter. Grown men don't need babysitters, hopefully. Like, you're 40, you got a babysitter. That's not good. That's a bad thing. Like, he's saying it's a bad thing to, to still have the law, like, like, when you're already in Christ. Like, when you grow up, you don't need a babysitter. He's outlived its usefulness in the same way when the law crushes you so that you cry out to Jesus and you're made right with God. You're no longer under the control of the law. The law has fulfilled its purpose. It's done. You're no longer under law, the domination of the law, the control of the law. You're now under grace, the control of grace, the domination of grace. So if all this is true, if it really is Jesus plus obedience equals condemnation and Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, that you can be, that you can be made right with God, but only through faith in Christ, then, then let's, let's flesh out, okay, what, what can I take home from all of this? How can I, let me try to help you find yourself in this passage. Because it's one thing for me to talk about theory, it's another thing to help you see, like, wait a minute, this is this is me. I need to see me here. So for some of you here this morning, point number one, you should, you need to, point number one, give up on your goodness. If you're here this morning, you should give up on your goodness. Some of you should give up. If after all of that, you're still saying, no, you don't understand. I've never cheated on my taxes, never cheated on my wife. I've never told a lie never stolen anything, never used God's name as a cuss word, never sexually immoral, always kept every rule. If you still, if you think that, you're insane according to the Bible. The Bible comes along and says, be honest, give up, surrender. Sin is any lack of conformity to God or any breaking of any law of God. You can't say, like, no, sin is the big stuff. You know, sin is adultery, and it's, like, embezzling money, and it's, it's, it's stuff like that. You can't say that because you are not the standard. The law is the standard, and the law says using God's name as a cuss word is the standard. The law says stealing. You've done that, you broke the law. No, I never stole a car. Did you steal a pen from your office? Like, that's what it gets at. Have you ever coveted anything, looked at somebody and said, I should have that, I want that, I need that? You've broken the law. There's no hope here. So why in the world wouldn't you just say, I, I give up? I'm not good. Allow this truth to crush you. Let the hammer of God's law 
smash your pride. Let the, the blade of God's law like cut your legs out from under you so that you fall at his feet and you cry out for mercy. Don't sit there and think after all of this, no, you know, I, I, I don't care what you're saying. I know I'm a good person. Paul says, the Bible says, God says, you're cursed until you give up, until you let it go. To trust in your own goodness is the equivalent of trusting your arms to make you fly. It's the equivalent of trusting your lungs to help you breathe underwater. It's not going to work. Your goodness was never meant to be the foundation of your acceptance with God. Your good deeds will never outweigh your bad deeds. No matter how much you try, you will fail. No matter how many times you get back up, the law will push you down again. You may pray, but not enough. You may read the Bible, but not enough. You You are not able to please him on your own. You will never be pleasing to God on your own, ever. You have no hope of that. Give up trying to do it. Allow this truth to crush you. Allow the law to do away with your goodness so that you can run to Jesus, so that you can surrender to him, so you can give your life to him. Release your confidence in yourself. Put all your confidence in the one who lived the perfect life that you did not, who God punished on the cross in your place as your substitute, getting what you deserve for your resume. And then who rose victorious from the dead, proving like God is satisfied with that sacrifice. And if he is satisfied with that sacrifice, then by God, I'm going to put my trust into Jesus because God is satisfied with him. Instead of thinking, God, I'm going to do this stuff so that you'll be satisfied with me. Be done with that. Give up on your goodness. Second thing, if salvation is by faith alone, the result of the law is that it exposes your sin so that it's crushed you. And if you've experienced that in your life, if you've experienced the weight of the law crushing you so that you're not good enough and you know it and that you're clinging to Jesus, nothing in your hand you bring, you've got no good works, you've let all of them go, simply to the cross you are clinging, then point number two, stop pretending you're perfect. Stop pretending you're perfect. If to get into Christianity, if to become a Christian, if to be saved means that you've admitted that you're a sinner, then what is this that we then, from that moment on, think, the best thing for me to do right now is to pretend I'm not a sinner. That's the best thing I should do. So in my community group, I'm just going to have you pray for my hurt foot. You know, not going to tell you that I'm addicted to porn and I need help. I'm, I'm going to pretend like my marriage is perfect when you guys don't even talk to each other at home. Oh, those pastors, I know they love us, but, you know, go to them. Confess to them and get help from them. Talk. Don't project this idea like we're good here, everything's fine. Get help. Don't project this idea that, hey, everybody's perfect and good. Nobody's perfect and good. It's only the perfect and good people who say, I don't need Jesus. Not perfect and not good people who really know that go, I need him. But stop pretending like, okay, I needed him for salvation, but I'm good to go now. You don't. You need him every day. You need him all the time. You need him every second because even after salvation, the law still comes along. You're still not keeping this. And where do you go in your mind? Do you run to Jesus or do you just doll yourself up with some good works? 
hey, look at me, I'm good. Stop pretending that you're perfect. Confess your sins to God. He will forgive you. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. You may be healed. James chapter 5. Like, even if it hurts your reputation, tell your community group you struggle. Be humble. Be honest. Ask for prayer for the real issues. Because maybe then you will see, like, the power of the gospel is not just in to save me. The power of the gospel is to sanctify me and to grow me and to see, like, God using that truth in other people's life because of your honesty. Stop pretending you're perfect. Number three, look at verse 26. If this is true, if salvation is by faith alone, number three, remember God as your father. Remember God as your father. To remain under the law rather than running to the Savior is foolish because verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Because verse 27 as many of you who believe were baptized, you were immersed into Christ, and because of that, you've put on Christ. Think about this. This blew me away as I was, as I was studying this and thinking about this and letting these truths roam around in my head. In Christ, you don't relate to God as lawgiver and judge because Jesus never related him, to him as lawgiver and judge. If you are in Christ, because you are in Christ, you relate to God like Jesus relates to God, and Jesus related to God as a son to a father. Christian, God is your father, and there's nothing to be afraid of because he's your perfect father. He's not abusive. He's not the weak kind. He's not the kind who leave. He's not the kind who belittles you. He's not the kind of father who's too busy for you. Remember, God is your loving father. Easy to return to the ideas that God is waiting to check you and punish you, and he's just standing over you with his arms crossed, ready to just pummel you. No, he pummeled Christ. He beat and battered and crushed Jesus so that he could look at you and say, I love you. You're my child. Don't let those thoughts enter your mind. Easy to think. Acceptance with him is based on your performance, not on your membership in his family, which cannot change. In the midst of doubt, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of fear, remember God is your father. Use that truth to fight away to fight through those things. He's your perfect father who saved you because he loves you. He's your perfect father who blesses you because you're his kid. He's your perfect father who knows your weakness but says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. He hears your prayers. He takes care of your needs. He forgives your sins. He is patient with you. He wants what's best for you every second of your life. He is encouraging what's best for you. Do not think for a second that he is anything other than your father and that he's a perfect father. Because why? Verse 27, verse 26, you are his child. Point number four, if salvation by faith alone is true, if, if we've been freed from the curse of the law because we are in Christ, then point number four, defend our unity at Redemption Gateway. Verse 27, notice that in Christ, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Why should racism and classism and sexism or any other superficial temporary prejudice difference have no place in the church? Why should there be no slander? Considering, why should we consider ourselves more, not consider ourselves more important than that? Like, why should we do all that stuff? Because we are all one. 
all the blessings, all the promises, all the resources of salvation are given to each Christian equally. No one is more blessed than someone else. No one is more saved than someone else. Everybody is equally saved. And what happens is that we find superficial little things to destroy that unity, things that really don't matter. There may be someone in this room right now that you need to go apologize to. That person might be sitting next to you because there's no unity between the two of you. Whatever it is, make things right. Defend the unity that we have. Jesus, it says in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus died to bring us together. So why are we going to let things pull us apart? There, there is nothing that should separate us because we are one in Christ. And finally, if this is all true, salvation is by faith alone. If salvation is, is purely based on the work of Christ, that you are made right with God and freed from the curse of the law, then like it says there, some of you here this morning should rejoice because almost everything Jesus deserves is yours. Almost everything he deserves is yours. I say almost because he deserves worship and you don't, but other than that, in Christ, it's every spiritual blessing according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And look at verse 29. Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring. Wait, how am I Abraham's offspring? Well, remember in verse 16, it said that the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. His offspring was Christ. And what he's saying is that you've been so identified with Christ, you've actually been placed into Christ. So that this privilege of being blessed through Abraham is yours. You don't deserve it. Jesus deserves it, and you're in Jesus. So whatever he deserves is yours. Instead of fixating on what you aren't, consumed with yourself, drinking the toilet water of your own, like, sinful thoughts and sinful flesh, think about the gospel. It tells you that you don't deserve anything good, only Jesus does, because only he is sinless. But since you're in him, everything that happens for you is for your good. For instance, you don't deserve for God to answer your prayers. You're sinful. You don't deserve anything good. But Jesus deserves that because he never sinned. But because you're in him, you have access to the very throne of God that only Jesus should have access to. You don't deserve a perfect record. In Christianity, it's not just like, here's your record, it's sinful, and God forgives you so it's wiped clean. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, it's wiped clean, and it's filled with perfection. Jesus, not yours. You don't deserve that. I mean, think about it. Only Jesus deserves that, but because you're in him, his perfection is yours. For instance, if you're horrible at witnessing to people, you can take that class, but just remember this. You're fumbling with the words, not saying the right thing, running away when the opportunity comes. That's not good. But if you remember John 4, Jesus witnessed perfectly to the woman at the well. And if you're in Christ, that instance, that, that, that victory in evangelism, that's yours. Jesus never was anxious or fearful, right? Boat's about to capsize. Ah, he's sleeping. 
People want to kill him. He's on trial for his life. He's just sitting there, very calm, trusting God. If that's not you by yourself, guess what? It is with Jesus. And because you're in Christ, his perfection is yours. If you lie, cheer up. Jesus never did, so his truth-telling is yours. If you've been sexually immoral, cheer up. Jesus never was, so his purity is yours. You don't deserve heaven. We just showed that from the law. The law destroyed you and said you don't deserve heaven. Jesus does. And because you are in Christ, guess where you're going? You see how if you let the law crush you and you stay there, you will never rejoice. But in Christ, there is rejoicing. So as we sing the songs we're about to sing, let the truth of the law and let the blessings of being in Christ truly affect your soul and, and cry out to him in joy and worship. Let's pray. Jesus, after, after looking at this, it, thank you is not, does not seem appropriate it's way less than you deserve. But we do thank you that where the law came along and cursed us, that you became a curse for us.